You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. In December 2017, the Australian Parliament legalised same-sex marriage. The fight for marriage equality was years in the making, with many individuals and groups putting in decades of hard work and emotional labour to fight for LGBT plus rights. It might surprise you that an instrumental force in the fight for marriage equality has been the trade unions. Rhiannon has been exploring this tale of seemingly unlikely solidarity. And for this episode, she's sharing that story with us. Rhiannon, what drew you to this story? Um, I guess it's kind of a story of, of two unlikely groups working together. And it's, you know, it's unlikely enough that I don't think many people would really think of it if it wasn't kind of told um and obviously like gay rights isn't really taught in schools very much at all really let alone Australian like gay rights or Australian history in that time and I think especially since kind of I take in like the marriage equality sort of fight as well I just think it's important for people to kind of remember that everything wasn't great all the time you know it wasn't always like this um there were all these sort of barriers and things that people had to deal with um and that wouldn't have changed if not for all of these people joining together and putting pressure on authority and organizing and taking to the streets and sending letters to people and dropping posters off and all of this stuff making cold calls like none of that would have happened um none of the rights that we'd have today we would have if not for all of those people who had put in all of the hard yards and put in all of this effort over so many years um, to get to that point. Um, So I think it's important to kind of remember like not where we came from but like where we were um, and how we've kind of progressed and, and how exactly we've gotten all of these rights and privileges that we didn't have in the past. Mm. Was there anything that you came across that you like weren't expecting? I guess story-wise, obviously I I uncovered a lot of stuff that hadn't really been, um, like it it was known and it it was in academic papers and it was known amongst union members and in those circles, but it was kind of stuff that not many other people knew. And so, yeah, there were all these other stories that like I kind of uncovered that I never would have found out if I'd just kind of like done a quick Google search. What was the sort of storytelling process like? I mean, like talking to all of these people and hearing their stories sort of like firsthand. How did you find that? Yeah, I found it really interesting. Um, Really sort of, I kind of want to say humbling almost. Like as a young gay person, it was so, it's so great to just talk to people who have kind of paved the way before I was born and before, you know, before I was even an adult to kind of Uh, start fighting for those rights myself or even um, to know anything about these things you know speaking to people who had been bearing the brunt of you know when homosexuality was illegal in Australia or when you know when we couldn't get married or when the AIDS crisis was like ravaging our community Um, speaking to those people who kind of saw all of that firsthand and paved the way for us to kind of have all the rights that we have today um, was amazing Um, 
it's yeah it's just great to kind of talk to our elders and and listen to the stories that they can tell um because I guess also with the AIDS crisis so many of our community was wiped out um and with that goes all the history especially all the oral history and like I was saying there's there's so little in terms of resources you can find online and and stories um besides you know in, in books and in fringe publications and stuff and some of that gets lost or some of that just isn't dug up very often um so yeah so just speaking to those people is amazing and you know every young gay person um should be thanking all the people that I spoke to for doing what they did and now it's my pleasure to share with you Rhiannon's story When a gay teenager approached a union of construction workers in the early 70s, they made the controversial decision to help him out in a way that had never been done before. It would be the beginning of a decades-long connection between trade unions and the fight for equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people. But with union memberships falling and the movement losing its bite, are they still willing to stick their necks out for other marginalised groups? In 1973, Australia was at the cusp of social and political upheaval, and an 18-year-old Jeremy Fisher left his hometown in Goulburn and stepped into the dazzling lights of Sydney for the first time. The Whitlam government had been elected, we'd withdrawn from the Vietnam War, we'd recognised China. Students were actually motivated to get out and do something about it, and they did. He'd just been offered a place at Macquarie University, studying English and linguistics, and he'd also moved into Robert Menzies College, which was campus accommodation. It wasn't long before he began to adjust to life in the city, becoming treasurer of the university's gay society. It had quite, well, there must have been around 20 or 30 people who were, were part of it, and we, we met fortnightly and just talked about different things. On the 26th of May, 1973, Jeremy attempted suicide. He woke up in a psychiatric hospital the next day, but had no idea what was coming next. Staff at Robert Menzies College had gone through his belongings and found something that would change everything. The master had been in my room and I had some gay lib badges and I had the material for the gay society there being the treasure and stuff. So he'd discovered that. My, my father and I went to meet with him and he said he wouldn't allow me back in the college unless I renounced my homosexuality and uh, lived a, a life without having any sex. I wasn't going to move in under, under those conditions. Jeremy went straight to his fellow gay society members who called on the university to step in, but they didn't really get anywhere. So instead, they turned to the Builders and Labourers Federation. It's not much good winning a 35-hour week if we're going to choke to death in planless and polluted cities. The Builders and Labourers Federation was a militant trade union, which was run by Jack Mundy. According to academic and historian Graham Willett, they were no strangers to using their industrial muscle for social good. The People who were transforming the union in general, who were essentially baby boomers who'd been through the radical period of the 60s, had brought their radical politics with them. And they wanted to transform the unions so that they weren't just concerned with wages and conditions, but with broader social issues. The builders and labourers were notorious for their green bans. When a piece of Sydney's history was at risk of falling victim to ambitious property developers, 
They'd simply put down their tools and refuse to knock down the city's heritage buildings. There will never ever be any reconstruction in this area until such time as the residents receive ironclad guarantees. And it just so happened that some parts of Macquarie Uni, including Jeremy's College, were still under construction. So some of the union's higher-ups paid a visit to the men on the job. Jack and Bob Pringle, who were in the Builders' Labourists' Federation, and Joe Owens went out to the college and spoke to the guys there. They looked at it and they said, no, just because your sexuality is not hetero, that shouldn't mean that you should be chucked out of a college. And they agreed that they would stop work if the college wouldn't let me back in. It was the world's first pink ban, a trade union threatening to go on strike in support of gay rights. Labor rights activist and author Meredith Bergman says it was difficult at first, but the BLF's leaders eventually managed to win over all of their members. Builders Labourers, of course, was really quite a macho union because it was about using your physical strength. And that's why the leadership of the BLF had a lot of trouble convincing their membership to take action on um, gay rights issues because a lot of the men really hadn't, probably hadn't thought about it before. Homosexuality was illegal all through Australia at this stage, so it was quite a feat of the leadership to manage to convince the membership to take action in support of gay students. It may have seemed like an unlikely partnership, but Graham says it wasn't that surprising that the BLF were keen to get involved. It was part of a, a package, really. We're against discrimination, we're against unfair treatment, or against racism and sexism, and though the word homophobia didn't exist yet, they were against it. And so it wasn't a huge leap to take up the issue. Eventually, Macquarie recommended that Robert Menzies College let Jeremy back in, so the ban was lifted. But Jeremy never did get his room back. And after a conversation with one of the BLF's leaders, Bob Pringle, the union understood why it didn't really matter whether he did. I said, well, I don't want to go back to it. Uh, and he said, well, what are we doing supporting you for? And I said, well, it's the principle of the thing. They shouldn't be discriminating. And, and he hummed and hard and said, yeah, 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 you're right. And so that was where they saw their support. It was on a principle basis. It wasn't a matter of whether I wanted to go back or not, but they just shouldn't be excluding me on that basis. No time for remembering that our love is thought wrong. Unnatural and perverted, they say. You emerge from your floating consciousness and look blue-eyed with love, and my whole being knows it's not wrong. In 1974, this poem was published in Arena, Macquarie University's student magazine. It was written by Penn Short, and it was about her first relationship with a woman. It also cost her a teaching scholarship. As part of that scholarship process, you had to answer a sort of psychological questionnaire. Then they said, oh, well, as a result of how you've answered this, these questions, you need to talk to a psychologist. And when I talked to her, she was saying, are you in a stable relationship? And so I said, well, I, I am in a stable relationship with a woman. And she said, oh, well, that's OK, as long as you keep it quiet. And that's just what Penn did until a copy of her poem landed on the desk of the Department of Education. I was told that because I hadn't been keeping it quiet, that I was a lesbian, I would lose my scholarship. The official letter said that I was medically unfit. 
and that was pretty upsetting. I mean, I was told privately that, that it was purely because I was out as a lesbian because to them being an out lesbian is, you know, it means you're medically unfit. It wasn't long before word of what happened spread across campus and almost a 1,000 people turned out to protest. And among them were the Builders and Labourers Federation. Their secretary at the time, Joe Owens, sent a telegram to the Minister of Education saying there'd be no maintenance work on government offices until Penn's scholarship was returned. Jack Mundy, um, he was a total hero to me um, with the green bands. I already sort of knew a lot about the BLF because they just were doing such a fantastic job protecting our heritage. So, you know, they were really socially aware and really environmentally aware. Like Jeremy Fisher, Penn's bid wasn't successful. Despite the efforts of the builders and labourers, she never got her scholarship back. I wanted them to sort of acknowledge, oh, actually, you would make a good teacher and, and you shouldn't have to hide who you are in order to be a teacher. But they stuck to their guns. But it did give her an idea for her next poem. Now the Department of Ed has a handy way of getting rid of people who've gone astray. They get a health commission lackey to say that you're completely wacky. Then for medical reasons, they say, we're taking your scholarship away. You won't be employed by the state unless you decide to go straight. Union support for the gay rights movement didn't end in the 70s. When the AIDS crisis hit Australia, a number of them stepped up and helped out in any way they could. At one point, truck drivers who worked for a large pharmaceutical company threatened to walk off the job when their employer refused to release a vital drug for people with the disease. And if you went into the Victorian Trades Hall Council building in Melbourne, you would have found people stitching together squares of the state's AIDS memorial quilt in the dedicated room the union had set up for them. Victorian Trades Hall Council would lend their hand to the LGBTQ movement again decades later in a defining moment for Australia. In 2004, the Howard government added a new section to the country's Marriage Act. The... Uh commonly accepted definition of a marriage as the union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others. What followed was more than 10 years of campaigning to get this phrase removed. And eventually wheels began to turn in Parliament. There were whispers of conscience votes, party room meetings, and the idea of something called a plebiscite was brought up. All Australians will have their say. They will get the opportunity to express their opinion. The rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people to marry who they love depended on a majority of Australians voting yes on a voluntary postal survey. Campaigners for the yes vote knew they had a mammoth task on their hands. They knew they needed numbers. And if history had taught them anything, there was one group that had it in spades. The big advantage that trade unions have over other campaigning organisations is people. We are literally like hundreds of thousands of people uh, who are in organisations, which A, means that we can talk to each other relatively quickly and B, we're kind of good at coordinating. Will Strzok is the Assistant Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council and was one of four union staff who had been tasked to run a field campaign to get marriage equality on the voters' radar 
and hopefully into the pages of law. So that was about kind of getting lots of our material out into people's houses and into streets. So we had postering drives where people would go out and post to their streets and, and go, you know, door knocking knocking um, on shops, like going shopping strips and, and asking um, people to put yes materials up in their windows and things, which was really about kind of constantly reminding people visually that the survey was coming and the survey was coming. Trades Hall in, in Melbourne in particular was an actual organising centre. You could go in and even if you just wanted to pick up badges and posters and things, there they all were waiting for you. If you wanted to volunteer, there is a group of people who would draw you into it. Hi there. I'm just calling about the upcoming postal vote on same-sex marriage. Will you be voting yet? And then there were the phone calls that we did. So we ran a lot of phone banks. We had a kind of giant database of numbers that are all publicly available numbers. And we rang people and asked them whether they had decided how they were going to vote and then if they were going to say yes, reminding them that they needed to vote. Will says actually getting people to send in their votes was a huge part of the campaign. After all, the debate had been going on since 2004. Most people had made up their minds on where they stood on the issue by now. The winner of this fight would be the side that could get the most supporters turning out to the proverbial polling booth. Besides campaigning to the general public, Trades Hall's other goal was convincing their own members why a vote for same-sex marriage was a vote for union values. We have a chant that we always use, which is when workers' rights are under attack, what do we do, stand up, fight back? Our strength is in the solidarity and our power is in the solidarity that we do. So this is about standing in solidarity with LGBTIQ trade unionists and our colleagues. And it's also about fairness and equality before the law. But not all unions were happy to get involved. In fact, the notoriously conservative Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association had been taking advantage of factional divides within the Labor Party to keep marriage equality out of the party room for years. Even some of the more progressive unions had mixed reactions from their members. There was a few resignations here and there. People join unions for lots of reasons, and if you've joined your union because what you reckon is you want to get better pay and better working conditions, it might not seem immediately obvious why your union might put time and energy into this kind of campaign. This wasn't new. Many trade unions faced backlash when they started adopting pro-gay policies in the 70s. There was even hesitation among the Builders and Labourers Federation when they were first asked to take up Jeremy's cause. Meredith Bergman says that there were lots of arguments on the worksite and in pubs over the union's part in it. I can remember endless discussions where even some of the officials themselves, the sort of second rung of officials, would query the homosexual man. And they'd say things like, oh yes, the guy's got a right to his own life, but you know, why are we putting ourselves out there supporting him? We should be involving ourselves in class issues. But unions weren't just copying criticism from the right. There were also cries of protest among the LGBTQ community, although the idea never really took off. Early on, there were a few people within the gay and lesbian movement who had doubts about the unions. They saw them as kind of male-dominated, part of the capitalist system and so on, sort of a radical critique of unions. Although I don't think there were more than a few people who even raised that and I don't think they got much resonance because they were seen as um, instruments of working class struggle, however badly they might be run, however conservative they might feel sometimes, how they didn't always do the right thing. 
they were nonetheless a means by which you could change society. Millions of Australians reported and responded to this voluntary survey. And change society they did. Australians can have confidence these statistics reflect the view of the eligible population. On the 15th of November 2017, Will and the rest of Trades Hall Council were about to find out if all their hard work had paid off. And now the official results of the Australian Marriage Law Posting Survey. Every state and territory recorded a majority yes result. So the announcement itself happened, the crowd went wild. I had a massive asthma attack and then I had to get up. I was the first person who had to get up and give a speech after the statistician's announcement. I want to thank the tens of thousands of people who took action for this campaign, who knocked on doors, who made phone calls, who put up posters, who did whatever they did and were able to do. While there's no doubt the Victorian Trades Hall Council and countless other unions made an immense contribution to achieving marriage equality, Will says it was much more than just their work. That postal survey and the result was the end result of literally millions of conversations that have been happening over decades. Like every single time someone comes out to their family and they influence how that family then sees these issues and it's very hard then to measure like, like who did what and that kind of stuff. I'm a feminist. And I would never have said that marriage would be something that I would end up campaigning passionately about. I am, of course, now married to my beautiful wife. I just look at it and go, that result was the end point of decades of activism, decades of courage and bravery and people taking risks and taking action. And the end result was really a marker of how far we've come with all of that. So what's next? Was marriage the final hurdle in the fight for equal rights? Or are we still a long way from the finish line? For Will, future battles will be won in the place unions know best. The workplace space is the space that we can do the most in. It's the space where we have the most influence with our members because we know and understand industrial structures and the ways that you can deliver change. She also points out change isn't always delivered in headline-grabbing strikes like pink and green bands or even mass protests. In fact, a small tweak to the definition of the word partner in awards and enterprise agreements can have a huge impact on workers' lives. Back in the day, a de facto partner was defined as a man and a woman. And so what unions did was said, no, 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 the partner includes somebody, any kind of basically significant other in a couple relationship. So unions started pushing for all of those kinds of rights that attach to married couples to apply to couples regardless of gender. And that fight started long, long, long before for the changes to the laws that now recognise partnerships in those ways. You know, whether or not you can take a day off to look after your partner is actually an important thing in people's ordinary day-to-day, and that's really the work that unions did and continue to do. I used to work in Department of Social Security when I was a workplace delegate. We had our monthly meeting, and something had happened somewhere around some kind of discriminatory action in one of the regional offices. And I raised it, and we immediately decided, yes, that was a problem, so we passed the motion. But we also made sure the organisers sort of went out to that workplace to sort of see what was going on and try to turn it around. And I always think of that as a kind of 
an example of stuff that's going on all over the place. But outside of the workplace, Graham isn't as hopeful that unions would still be willing to stick their necks out for LGBTQ rights. The role of the unions, I think, is much less clear. I'm not sure what we should be demanding of them, and even if we did, whether they'd be interested in making those making their resources available. I think in that sense the marriage campaign was really heartening. They really did throw themselves into it. It wasn't just a matter of passing motions. If history tells us anything, we've come a long way. Whatever our next battle is, there's a good chance it won't be fought alone. It was a big step to acknowledge yourself back in the 70s. But once you did, it wasn't as, as frightening as it might have seemed. And the, the fact that more people can be in that position and not even worry about it often these days, I think is, is terrific. That story was produced by Rhiannon Solomon Marin. You've been listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. At All the Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. All the Best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to their elders past and present. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal Land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Emma Pham is our social media producer and our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>